Welcome to the latest episode of the Trialed and Tested podcast, brought to you by the Education Endowment Foundation and Evidence-Based Education. This episode is all about working memory. What is it? Why is it important to teaching and learning? And how can we use what we know about working memory to try and improve learning for our students? In this episode, we have three guests. We have Alex Quigley from the Education Endowment Foundation, and we have Julie Watson from Huntington Research School. But the first guest that we're going to hear from is Dr. Tracy Alloway. Hi, Tracy. Hi, Jamie. Tracy, whereabouts in the world are you right now? I'm currently in sunny Florida, Jamie. Okay, so you're making me a little bit jealous because it's not so sunny where I am, but we'll (laughs) move on from that. Could you please give us a a quick introduction to who you are and what you do, please? Absolutely. So my name is Dr. Tracy Alloway. I'm a psychologist. I received my PhD in the UK at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Um, I currently work in Florida at a university. I also uh, publish books and um, and get a chance to work a lot with the community and do various media uh, presentations and so on about my research. Well, thank you very much. I'll just add to that a little bit because you've been uh, quite modest, I think. So as you said, you're a cognitive psychologist uh, known for your research, well known for your research on working memory. In fact, you've developed the world's first working memory test designed for use by educators. You've published, I believe, over 100 scientific articles on working memory and your work has been featured by the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Forbes, Psychology Today, to name a few. And you mentioned that you've offered a few books. There's 13 of those, I believe, including yes. Working Memory Advantage, <laughs> Understanding Working Memory, Working Memory and Learning, and Improving Working Memory to Support Students' Learning, which is exactly the focus of our podcast today. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And I'm going to dive in and ask you um, the first question. And I'd really like you just to explain, please, in in real sort of lay terms, what is working memory? That's a great question, uh, Jamie. And the best way to think of working memory is like your active memory, the memory that you use to work with information. So the word working comes to play. So, for example, when you're in a classroom and you're listening to the teacher, you use your working memory to actively engage with that information. And it's a a kind of symbiotic relationship in that we also use our working memory to extract or retrieve information in our long-term memory. So if your teacher is talking about multiplication tables, your working memory takes that new information, matches it with what you know about addition and so on from your long-term memory and puts it all together. Typically, when I speak to educators, I like to use the image of a post-it note when I talk about working memory because a post-it note has a couple of features that are really similar to working memory. The first is that it's limited in space. So we all have a set amount of space that we can work with information in our brain. And the second thing is that we also use it as a temporary storage. We're kind of, uh, it's a holding zone, if you will, where we're keeping that information active just for a brief amount of time. It's not really a storage system per se, because ultimately we either keep it and move it on to our long-term memory to store, or we lose that information if we haven't actively engaged with that enough. Thank you, Tracy. So can you expand on that perhaps by telling us a bit about why working memory is so important to learning? 
That was actually a question that was posed to me in my very first government-funded study. And at the time, I was in the UK. I just finished my PhD and uh, was part of a, a multi-million dollar project all across the UK. We worked with schools uh, up from north to south, east to west. We had a, a huge amount of participation, which was re really exciting. And our question was very simple. If you're looking at a group of kindergarten children, a group of five and six-year-olds, what is one of the key fundamental skills that they need to have in place in order to be successful learners. And so we set about over a uh, multi-year study to answer this question. We sat in schools, we interviewed teachers, we observed children, we interviewed parents, and we also administered a whole battery of standardized assessments from standardized IQ assessment, phonological skills, uh, baseline assessments, looking at reading, writing and math, and of course, working memory. And just as a quick aside, you can do a quick working memory test to see how big your post-it note is at home if you're listening along. Um, and one way to do that is a very common task called the backward digit test or the backward number test. So if I give you a series of numbers, can you remember them in backwards order? And we, we can do this together, Jamie. If I say five, seven, six, are your listeners able to remember that in backwards order? So you'd say six, seven, five. Now, an average five-year-old would be able to do, uh, remember, maybe two numbers in backwards order. An average adult in their 20s, in their 30s, even in their 40s, can typically remember about five numbers in backwards order. So that gives us some kind of framework for what that space is like on our post-it note when it comes to working memory. Now, back to why uh, working memory is important, we, we found something that was really surprising when we were doing the study. We were convinced that, you know, IQ would come up as a key predictor to learning. And, and of course, it does. The substantial research, uh, you know, multiple studies, uh, it's a very well-established finding that IQ is important to learning. But what was surprising to us was that working memory was even more important. So in other words, if you're looking at that kindergarten class, and you imagine their IQ levels to be equivalent across the board. It's those differences in working memory that were highly predictive, highly informative of how well they would do in reading and writing and in math. But the story doesn't end there because, you know, as a psychologist, we get to follow these children um, over time. And six years later, when I tracked down a group of them, I found that it was their working memory at five that was highly predictive and, in fact, most important in telling me how well they were performing in national assessments six years later. So when you're looking at that five-year-old, knowing their post-it note size, that working memory space, was so critical in determining their learning success, not just at kindergarten, but even six years later. Well, Tracy, I was so glad you didn't actually test me there. I quietly grabbed <laughs> a pen just in case so I could write down some numbers, but thankfully you didn't do that. Um, so I, I have a feeling that that, um, that study, did that involve uh, the Centre for Evaluation and Monitoring at Durham and their standardised assessments, the PIPs baseline assessment? Is that um, actually, we were looking at key stage uh, key data stage. at the time. Okay. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay. Um, and, and to me, What's even more exciting is not just the power of working memory in informing academic learning, but what was more exciting is that working memory is considered a culture fair assessment. So again, this is drawing from my own research 
lab, but many colleagues in different countries around the world have, have found similar patterns. And that is that working memory is not significantly related to the mother's educational level. And here we looked at the mother because typically they're the primary caregiver. Yeah. And um, so when you look at other socioeconomic indices like the primary caregiver's educational level, like even postal code, which is another factor that we looked at, and this was published very recently, we used a huge marketing database that's used in the UK where it's highly sensitive to the income level based on the postcode. So when I talk to educators, I say that the marketing database is so fine grained, it's based on, uh, you know, um, it's so detailed that based on the postcode, it can tell you what kind of newspapers you like to read, what kind of coffee you like to drink. So that's mm -hmm. how detailed and fine grained it is. So we use that same system that marketing uh, agencies use. And we found that working memory was not significantly related to that. So in other words, it's a very fair assessment of what the child is able to learn. Mm. It's not measuring, you know, whether the mother is able to read books to them, take them to the library, take them to museums and give them these kind of enrichment opportunities that we know are associated with IQ. Now, in contrast, working memory is independent on all of that. So it's very exciting to me because it's saying we're just looking at almost a pure measure of learning potential that this child has at five years of age. And that pure measure can tell us how successful they can be in the classroom. And can you tell us something about the importance of working memory in that relationship to long term memory as well? So. Um, what's the interaction there and how important is that long-term memory store for, for the short-term memory, working memory? That's a great question. And as I mentioned just briefly earlier, it's what's called a symbiotic relationship. It's, it's mutual. They both benefit each other. In other words, um, if you have a good long-term memory, that can help your working memory. And a, and a clear example is reading. So if you've already automated certain words in your reading vocabulary, in your lexicon, when you come across a passage, you can, you know, when you come across a new word, you can draw from your long-term memory and say, oh, I know if a word ends with A-T, it makes the at sound. So although I don't know this word, that, I know the A-T makes the at sound, the V makes the V sound, and I can put it together. So in that way, working memory works very well with long-term memory. And we see that as a result, working memory is very closely associated with some learning difficulties. Dyslexia or reading difficulties are one. Dyscalculia, math difficulties, it's another. Because if we don't have a good library or long-term store of that information, there's less for our working memory to draw on. Uh, the reverse is... In other words, if your working memory isn't very big, if your post-it note is smaller and you have poor working memory, then it might take you longer to build up that store and you could be playing catch up with your peers because you, you, take a, you, know, you need more time, you need more effort, more engagement in order to build up that same long-term memory store as your peers. Is working memory uh, a fixed capacity or could we develop working memory? And that is a fascinating question. I get asked that a lot, Jamie. Maybe 10 years ago, we thought that it was fixed. So it was genetic, something else we can blame our parents for, but that we couldn't really change it very much. But since then, there has been a plethora of research across the lifespan from as young as five up to people in their 60s and even in their 70s demonstrating that working memory is far more flexible and even adaptive, that not only can we see functional changes based on how we use working memory, so functional changes in the brain where we show greater activation, uh, 
But we also, in some cases, can see structural changes where parts of the brain can actually change and adapt based on daily habits. So some of the foods that we eat, whether it's flavonoid-rich foods like blueberries or dark chocolate, which is great news if you're a chocolate lover, mm -hmm. to, e <laughs> to even daily activities. So in my own research, I've looked at barefoot running to show that that can boost working memory. Just 16 minutes of running can improve our blood flow to our prefrontal cortex, the home of working memory, and show significant benefits up to 20% improvement in a working memory. So there's lots of research. I detail this in, in one of the books you mentioned earlier, The Working Memory Advantage, where it's not just training working memory, but also just simple tweaks to everyday life that can show real significant benefits to our working memory. Wow. So you mentioned running there. Is that that's a short term boost, is it? Or are you saying that doing that kind of activity over time will give you a long term boost to your working memory capacity? That's right. So I like to conceptualize it on a continuum where in some instances, you need you know, weeks at a time to see benefits. And food is a great example. So all the published research on the link between benefits of certain types of food and working memory, typically they run five, six weeks long before you see benefits. So as I mentioned, blueberries, the flavonoid-rich foods, kale, spinach, uh, even omega-3-rich foods, you have to uh, commit to doing that a few times a week over multiple weeks in order to see working memory benefits. But on the other side of the continuum, if you need that quick boost of working memory, we can see benefits right away. So 16 minutes of running barefoot running specifically showed uh, an improvement to a 20% improvement to working memory immediately. Other research, so I have colleagues in the UK that have published research looking at um, essential oils, and they found that things like rosemary and peppermint oil, they boost a memory neurotransmitter called acetylcholine, and you see benefits to working memory immediately. So if you have a few weeks and you want to build up that working memory reserve, Food is a great way to do that. But if you have an exam and you need to see that quick boost, things like essential oils improve acetylcholine, barefoot running improves working memory. So there are things you can do wherever you want to uh, fall on that continuum of, of you know, building up that working memory reserve. Wow. So and, and how are you able to detect the gains in working memory from these experiments like barefoot running? Mm -hmm. We use the same thing that we talked about a bit earlier. We look at bare, uh, backward digit recall right. as one example. Uh, we also look at visual working memory. And in all of these studies, and for simplicity, I've, I've you know, not included all these details, but they're all published scientific trials. So we, the barefoot running, for example, we controlled for heart rate. We controlled for the uh, uh, exertion or energy level that's used and expended. Uh, we looked at running with shoes, without shoes, with uh, with certain attentional focus, without attentional focus. So all of them are, you know, highly controlled studies that I'm referring to here. But backward digit recall is a very reliable way to measure working memory capacity. Okay, so now moving. I'm glad that it's not fixed and we can do something <laughs> about it. That's really good. Um, is we've talked about barefoot running, essential oils and, and, and other food types, but what can teachers uh, do about it? What do they need to know about it and how can they attend to it in their working practices? And I've 
And, and that's another great thing. I've, teachers are so receptive to learning new information. And I've had a chance over the, you know, uh, almost two decades now that I've been working in, in this uh, field and very closely with educators. They have a great awareness of what working memory is. But sometimes the disconnect happens when they perceive the behaviors of working memory and attribute them to something else. So they may see a child struggling with working memory in the classroom, but they may misidentify that child as being lazy as being a daydreamer or simply mm -hmm. not focusing. Um, and so my goal at that point was to kind of address this disconnect and to help teachers identify those specific behaviors as a working memory deficit or as a working memory impairment. And that's what led to me developing the working memory rating scale, which is published by Pearson. And it's a simple checklist that teachers can use. It's, uh, you know, highly validated, very reliable. And the key is that those working memory behaviors are very distinct from ADHD type behaviors. So a child with poor working memory in the classroom typically isn't that hyperactive or impulsive child. They're the ones that are falling below the radar because they're the ones that are sitting quietly, they don't, they're not raising any attention, uh, distracting the teacher and so on, but they have disengaged from the learning process because they're frustrated. And so the working memory rating scale allows the teacher to, it's just 20 behaviors, and it quickly helps them identify these behaviors in the child, and it, it's all color-coded. So if the child's behaviors are falling in the yellow or the red zone, we know that's a cause for concern and they want to follow it up a little bit more with standardized testing for working memory and then start implementing strategies. Okay, so teachers need to be aware of the working memory capacity of their students um, mm -hmm. to fully understand them. And um, what might they be able to do to help boost working memory in the classroom or can we not just we can't teach that or can we oh absolutely we can so i've written a number of books as, as you mentioned earlier uh, jamie published by sage things like improving working memory there's a chapter identifying each type of learning and targeting working memory strategies to that um, so improving working memory has a chapter on reading difficulties and, and looking specifically at the working memory struggles of a child with reading and then how the teacher can implement strategies targeted on that. Um, this summer, in fact, in, now that we're in July, uh, there are a couple books that I've written specifically for children, for sort of the five to eight year olds, where I look at working memory, the superpowers of a child with dyslexia, with ADHD, with autism and with anxiety. But here I switch the focus a little bit and I talk about the memory superpowers that they might have and how if a teacher is based uh, is working with a strength based model in the classroom, what they can do. So the back of the book is uh, has tips that the teacher and, or the parent can implement to help that particular child. Um, another book coming out this summer published by uh, Hache is called How Can I Remember All of That? And that's also geared for the kind of 10 to 14 age group. And it's the perspective um, of what working memory looks like from a child. So when they're sitting in the classroom, what are they struggling with? And again, has lots of tips for the child to be able to do, but for the teacher to be able to implement in the classroom. So there's lots of resources from a classroom perspective, looking at improving working memory from a young child, what they could look at in capitalizing their strengths, their memory superpower, if they have a reading difficulty, or a kind of, you know, a preteen, uh, early adolescent age group, and what they can do to improve their working memory, what the teacher can do to support them in the classroom. 
Well, thank you very much, Tracy. I think you'll be glad to hear that in uh, in England at the moment, working memory is getting quite a bit of attention. Uh, people are talking about it quite a lot. Teachers are blogging about it. And hence the reason why we've got this um, EEF trial mm -hmm. on working memory, improving working memory in maths specifically. So thank you very much for sharing with us your years of expertise and advice and starting off this podcast. We're going to go away now and talk to colleagues elsewhere about their experience in the trial and of working memory interventions. Thank you. Thank, thank you for having me, Jamie. Alex, thanks for being part of the podcast. You were a guest in our very first podcast on metacognition and self-regulated learning, and some people might be familiar with who you are, but for those who aren't, could you please briefly introduce yourself? Okay, so my name's Alex Quigley. I work at the Education Endowment Foundation uh, as National Content Lead, so I support with training and resources for teachers. Uh, previously, up until last year, I was uh, an English teacher for 15 years, I'm working in a school in York, uh, and I also, uh, in my spare time, write books for teachers. In your spare time. Um, thank you. So I've just spoken to Dr. Tracy Alloway for an introduction to working memory, and I'd like to ask you about the trial that the EEF funded. But first, I really want to ask, when, as a teacher, did you first come across working memory, and what was your initial reaction to that? It must have been um, four or five years ago, I actually found this Understanding Work and Memory Classroom Guide written by um, Dr. Alloway and Professor Gathercole. And it just really struck me as, a, as an explanation for a lot of the challenges that particularly um, pupils who I taught who struggled with English, who most struggle with writing and, and reading and, and especially reading complex texts. So it could be reading Shakespeare or Dickens. And a lot of their issues came down to, you know, having their knowledge, the background knowledge of, you know, history and literature and the words. But also there was often a struggle with writing to know where to start, um, to plan. But then actually when you get underneath it, the act of writing is a really complex thing. So at any one time you're thinking about handwriting, transcription, you're thinking about your word choices, you're thinking about the task and, and whether you're writing you know, appropriately for your audience and the purpose, you're thinking of good ideas, and, and all of these things happen at once. And, and this notion and understanding of working memory being this, this point of short-term memory where you're trying to grapple with lots of new input, lots of new knowledge at once, that struck home for me as something that I could see in the classroom every day. And, and after reading the classroom guide, it just gave me really simple understandings around some of the strategies I could employ. And, and also it reinforced things I knew. So one of the examples um, the researchers in the classroom guide talk about is just chunking. And if you think about you know, your telephone number, how we naturally chunk it down into smaller steps. And, and I think I'd done that with writing, for my pupils, but it just made me think in, in, in lots of nuanced ways how, particularly for struggling writers, I could break things down further and help them. So, so finding out more about working memory, it was just helpful to push up my professional knowledge and just give me those, those hints to just get that a little bit better. So from the perspective of you as a teacher in the classroom, what is your understanding of working memory? and how might it be applied? You've talked about it a bit already in your subject. 
Okay, so if I just move outside my subject for a moment, if I think around science, um, one of my roles in school was to be a line manager of the science department, so I spent a lot of time in science lessons. Um, and in many ways, I was, I was sitting there like a pupil. Um, I didn't have all the requisite background knowledge, and, and I was struggling. And, and I can remember vividly sitting in biology A-level lesson and an, uh, an explanation, four or five minutes, and I can just remember trying to grapple with the sheer mass of words and ideas and concepts that I didn't quite know. And, and you know, you stand back from that and you think, right, that's to do with knowledge and understanding, of course, and listening and these basic things. But also, that's the, this act of working memory, that you can quickly juggle that information, organise that in your mind, process it, and then be able to remember it and use it in future. Um, so it was really good to have this kind of stand back moment and feel like a student, feel like a pupil myself. In my, in, in my subject around English, I you know, usually were working with older children who were more fluent writers and who could read you know, a Dickens novel or a, or a poem um, with some ease. But, but even there, you know, if you've got an A-level class and you're you know, teaching um, a Shakespearean play, you're still grappling at any one time with reading one speech is about trying to decode the words, trying to piece together and, and add some fluency to your speech. And also you're trying to trigger what you know about these words and ideas in this culture. And you're trying to connect it up, you know, all near instantly. And I think what teachers do, and probably without a teacher knowing what working memory might be in a very explicit way, teachers always recognize we need to break down complex tasks, we need to scaffold, we need to explain. I think many of the best approaches to explicit teaching are actually trying to address this narrow bottleneck of working memory. So I think in, in the English classroom, it applies to so much. It applies to those core processes of reading and writing. In science, it applies to listening to a science explanation, to you know, following a science experiment. It, it's everywhere. It's everywhere where pupils are thinking and juggling with, with difficult concepts and ideas. Thank you, Alex. So tell us a little bit more about this working memory trial that the EEF funded. Okay, so the Improving Working Memory Trial, um, conducted by Oxford University, um, it was a trial involving 127 primary schools, and it was actually focused on year three pupils. So pupils aged seven and eight, um, nearly 1,500 pupils involved in the project. And the trial was exploring how teachers can support around the, these kind of working memory bottleneck, the challenges that particularly young children face, uh, and with arithmetic particularly. Um, there have been some criticisms, actually, of this trial as kind of that working memory as an act in this trial is, is brain training or some generic kind of separate um, process. When actually, when you dig into the evaluation, which is obviously available on the EF website, when you look um, at the detail of the trial, it is about TAs, teaching assistants, being supported to help children enact some really simple but important strategies to kind of navigate this working memory challenge. So, you know, simple things like to verbalise, you know, some of the um, some of their knowledge around arithmetic. You know, to count aloud, to use their fingers in in, in that 
arithmetic work. And actually, when you look from the outside, you might think, oh, well, these, these are just things every child does. Or, but actually, they're not. And, and these are strategies that, for many children, they tacitly become aware of them and use them quite naturally. But then many children don't naturally use these strategies. So the evaluation and the project was about trialing these different strategies to try and support working memory um, and there was a two, two threads really. There was a working memory intervention where children um, were supported for a smaller amount of time with some of these strategies and then there was a working memory plus where they were supported um, with the same working memory strategies but, but more support around arithmetic. But what's really promising is that for both of those threads, um, the singular working memory training and then the working memory plus, that actually all pupils made three months progress, which is really promising for what is a short targeted intervention. And, and what it offers us is, is some approaches for teaching assistants but, and teachers as well, supporting children with their early arithmetic. You know, we can't necessarily extrapolate too far about what we might do, you know, with GCC mathematics. But I think it gives us some really good starting points with the research around how we can support children to overcome this working memory bottleneck. Um, and I think like, like any trial, any result, it's about now finding out more, trying to test that in different ways at different stages in school and for different subject domains. But, but far from it being about brain training or, or, or something a little spurious, actually, this is about teachers and TAs being really precise about helping children strategically overcome barriers to, to remembering. Was, was the trial around uh, just supporting teachers and teaching assistants to attend to working memory and to work with that? Or was it also about improving working memory capacity? I, I, think, I think the logic is that TAs would explicitly train pupils to use these strategies and that, you know, that would have a, a gain in terms of their you know, attempts to grasp that initial um, you know, problem around arithmetic, but that that training would be a strategy that they'd quite quickly internalise and then use um, particularly the mathematics, but it may be that that you know this kind of speaking aloud and you know, using their fingers can be you know used in other aspects uh, of the school curriculum. And if you think about um, this notion of just talking and, and saying the numbers aloud, there's a there's a rich long history in in recognizing that self-talk and elaborating talking about what we know helps us consolidate it and, and remember it better. So I think the theory around these strategies is, is quite rooted in what we know around learning and memory. Um, it's just that I think for this trial, it was about explicitly training pupils and that they would then um, perhaps use these strategies more independently um, and maybe beyond arithmetic too. Tracy Alloway was talking about um, improving working memory by eating certain foods and uh, barefoot running. There was none of that in the trial then? Um, not to my knowledge. <laughs> I've read the evaluation. I've, I may have spotted it. I think, I, I think it's interesting around aspects of memory. It, it's a really salient topic in schools because we know 
you know, this is a challenge with, with difficult tasks like, you know, mental maths or, or with reading and writing. That working memory is always there. Um, and I think there's, there's a debate around how subject specific these strategies are and how much of it is just children just knowing more. Um, so, you know, do, is knowing your number facts the chief strategy to overcome working memory issues? And in part, it is an integral strategy. Without knowledge, you can't, you can, you can't be strategic. However, I think what this trial shows and what a lot of evidence around metacognition, around explicit instruction shows is that when we break down complexity, when we offer pupils you know, realistic, usable strategies to think really efficiently, effectively, that they internalize them quite quickly and you know, that they process them and they use them beyond where we probably expected them to use them. And there's a little bit of debate about you know, how domain-specific strategies can be and whether you, know, you can be gen generic, so you can be you know, taught to have your work and memory be expanded. I don't, I don't think that's quite the case, but, but actually with a strategy like chunking, like the, you, know, you chunk your phone number, well, chunking applies to mathematics, so you can chunk uh, you know, numerical problems. Chunking applies to reading, so you can kind of break down remembering aspects of a quote Shakespearean quotation into chunks. And, and it applies across the curriculum. And I think where the tricky research and evidence is looking to explore is where are those strategies best rooted? How much do you need the subject knowledge and specificity? At what stage um, do, you, do you take away these strategies and in instruction? So I think there's lots more to find out about working memory. I think there's lots of positive indicators around the progress in this project. And, and, and it comes from this strategic support for young children, which is bound to the arithmetic and it's bound to TAs having really good quality training to help young children get better at learning. Hi, Julie. Hi, Jamie. Julie, we've been really keen to, to talk to you about working memory and what you've been doing in your own school and, and in supporting other schools. But could you um, briefly introduce yourself before we get into that? Of course I can. So my name's Julie Watson and I teach psychology here at Huntington School in York. So obviously only teach six formers in that role. And I do that two days a week and then three days a week I'm the assistant director of our research school here at Huntington and I specialise in memory and metacognition so although I do present on the um, the broader range of engaging with evidence across uh, the different courses we do they're my two areas of specialism are, are understanding how memory works and the evidence behind it and metacognition. Perfect well I know from um, a brief chat earlier that you've actually introduced some of the work of Dr Tracy Alloway who was the first guest in this podcast so I'm really interested to hear what you've done with that. Could we start with just a, a, an idea of why you've been supporting teachers in their understanding and, and engagement with working memory and how you've done that? Yeah of course I think that it all started because it, initially I, I feel very strongly that it's important that teachers do understand how memory works in general 
and that enabling them to have a better understanding of those processes will mean that they can structure their lessons around that understanding how memory and how forgetting works and as we've done more training around that both as you say within the staff at our own school and with delegates from from a range of different institutions across the country I've really felt like although there is starting to be more understanding of the need for teachers to understand memory that the focus has been more on strategies like revision strategies particularly at secondary schools and focusing on the shift from working memory to long-term memory and it's been great to see more interest and and use of, of Dunlosky strategies for example but my suspicion was that although it's brilliant for people for practitioners to be looking at that often The issue is that information hasn't got to working memory in the first place. So as well as understanding how to get the information from working memory to long term memory, we must also just work with teachers around how do you actually ensure that it it passes through working memory effectively in the first place? Okay, thank you, Judy. Um, So can you talk us through then how you support teachers in engaging in working memory? So presumably you start with some sort of theory. Can you guide us through the narrative, I suppose, in in your work with teachers? Absolutely. Yeah, so we tend to, and and this has come out a a range of different ways. We've just found that doing this work has come through in the whole staff training, as I say, that we've done at our own school. We found that this has been a key part of, of understanding cognition as part of the three-day metacognition self-regulation course that we've delivered. We've done a one-day course on memory of which this played a key role but also a two-day course on curriculum. So we've just found that this this has cropped up really and and seemed like such an important thing to use with delegates um, on a range of different programs. And what what we've tended to do in the first place is is go through the the multi-store model by Atkinson and Schifrin in general first of all just to ensure that all delegates understand those basic differences between sensory, short-term or working memory and long-term memory. We've then really explained why working memory is an important area to focus on. So drawing their attention to the limited capacity, how it can very quickly be overwhelmed. We've tended on courses to to exemplify that by getting delegates to carry out the digit span test as well, which they've they've really enjoyed doing, but has also shocked them, I think, to find actually how limited their capacity some of them it, it can be. We've then ensured that in all our training, we, we try and balance the theory with that reflection on their own practice and really encourage them to reflect on in their own teaching, whether they accommodate for the limited capacity of working memory and using examples. I've got one here, actually, that we use to show them, at, which is a common instruction that you could give to a, a classroom of primary school children. So put your sheets on the green table, your arrow cards in the packet put your pencil case away and come and sit on the table and just the idea that and and primary colleagues when you go through that will will laugh straight away because they'll they Mm. they say well we we do use those kind of instructions and yet the child with a poor working memory may well just go and sit down or they go and put their sheets on the green table and then don't do the rest and will identify these children as having behavioral issues being naughty and actually if the instructions were given and broken down for them then they they can follow them. So I think using examples and, and really encouraging people to then reflect on their own practice has been really useful there. 
as you say, the work by by Alloway and, and Gathercall as well has been a huge part of our training. And we found a classroom guide to just be incredibly useful. Every time we've used that in our training, delegates have found that a, a great takeaway. So we tend to do a study group around that where we'll break it down. Uh, so groups will work together and read a section each and then share those. Just really thinking about what parts of that resonate with them, about the children that they work with. And then again, having that personal reflection time in terms of what can I do about this? So what strategies can I take from this? And it's really interesting because our training programs, we, we attract people from early years right through to, to post 16. And just thinking about, well, actually, how does this look for the age group that I work with? How is this different? And I think one of as a secondary teacher myself, one of the really interesting things has been what we can learn from our primary colleagues, because actually that great graph that was used by, by Pickering and Gathercott, where they show on average how children's working memory does increase as they get older. And I think most of us expect that of the children that we teach. So if you're teaching a, a child of 15, 16, 17, you expect them to be able to handle these large amounts of content and manipulate them. Whereas people who are teaching five-year-olds will, will not necessarily expect that in the same way. But what's really interesting about this graphic is, is how it shows the individual differences, the variation, uh, which is so big for, for one child to another. So it just demonstrates in a really nice visual way that a five-year-old could have a higher capacity of their working memory than a 15-year-old. So actually, just because we're working with older children, we shouldn't expect them to have this large capacity. And therefore, our instructional design and the way that we're presenting things, we should be considering that for all children, regardless of the age that we're teaching. I think people listening will be you'll be screaming out to hear more about this classroom guide and some of the strategies. Can you talk a little bit about those that you mentioned? Yeah, definitely. I think one of the, the things that we're really keen to address, and, and they do beautifully in the guide, is that this is not about making what we're teaching easier. So it's not saying don't have a high level of challenge, don't have a high level of expectation in your classroom. It's saying that we can think about things in terms of our instructional design or like the earlier example I gave about in a primary classroom, you know, don't give a string of instructions to a child. And the idea of not getting them, if, if you've got a question, if that can be written at the side, I'm thinking a, a maths example has come to mind, but have the question written next to it. So they don't have to hold what the instructions instruction is in the head at the same time as trying to manipulate that and work with it. I think one of the other strategies that has really resonated with delegates is around understanding the different components of working memory. So understanding that there's different parts of working memory that deal with visual information and verbal information and thinking about how not talking over words that are written on the board or while the children are trying to write if you carry on giving them more instructions they won't be able to attend to both and that I think has been quite a simple strategy that teachers have really appreciated to take away because they can see how they can make a little shift in their teaching and how for those children particularly those with a poor working memory it could have a really big impact for. So when people are coming along to your um, training sessions for example what do you hope they will go away and do next what do you hope 
will be the change in behaviour and practice? I think one of the first things is that initial identification of children who do have a poor working memory. So um, there's a great profile of a poor working memory. So it, it take again taken from the, this work by Gather Colin Alloway, um, just talking about what it would look like. And I think people are quite shocked by the amount of children actually it's predicted have this profile of a poor working memory. But the idea that they will tend to have very normal social relationships with their peers. However, in group activities, they'll become very reserved, take a step back. They'll really struggle to follow instructions. They'll struggle to keep their place. So you might find, again, in the maths example, if it's got multiple stages, they might miss one or they might do one twice. So I think one of the key aims for us is that initially teachers will be able to identify children who have a poor working memory and then that they can use some of these strategies mm. about using imagery rather than talking over text and um, spacing things, even things like using simple bullet points to space information out for children rather than overloading them, but not to make their teaching and what they're teaching easier. Yeah, it's really struck me actually through um, the three conversations that I've had as part of this podcast about how much working memory is is a factor in in children's behaviour. So some some young people are just they they haven't got the capacity to perhaps deal with the instruction, the information that's being given to them, and so they're getting maybe to step one or step two. They're not able to to handle this information, and so they you lose them at that point. At which point they then are presumably distracted and they start doing something else, and that that had never really occurred to me before. And I wonder if that's a surprise to others as well. Oh, definitely. And I think it's that idea that, you know, when you're talking about this with people, you do see very much like you've just said that moment and they're like, they're just nodding around the room and they're saying, I can see that. I can see how that's happened with this child, how actually. And then they've learned to dislike education and they become demotivated and all that stuff around self-regulation that then, you know, they've lost their interest, their motivation in what they're doing. And then they will become naughty and they lose that kind of self-efficacy that belief in themselves being able to do something and and the idea that the gap then just widens if we don't put any strategies in place for them but I think one of the nicest things of it it feels as it has in this conversation actually it feels like it gets a little bit negative and people are like oh gosh this is awful Mm. but having these strategies about however by using strategies by supporting children by making tweaks to our practice these children can make just as good progress. It's just about us ensuring that we identify them and we put those support strategies in place. And for me, that's very much where the metacognition can come in, that by supporting those strategies, we can help these children. And then, you know, there doesn't have to be a gap. They don't have to continue to fall behind. You know, with appropriate intervention, we can support them to make good progress. Okay, so to to draw our conversation to a close, then Julie, give us so so for, for some teachers who have, have, have listened to this and thought this is important, this might explain quite a few things in terms of behaviour in my classroom. Um, I want to do I do want to do more about this and and and, and get into um, how I can look at working memory in terms of practice and and classroom climate and whatever else. What, what could they do next? What would what would be your advice in terms of those baby steps? 
I would definitely suggest looking at that classroom guide itself. I think it, it's beautifully written for teachers, just in terms of breaking it down, giving strategies, giving them some advice about uh, more detail around what I've said about how can I identify this and very much the and what next what can I do to support this mm. with the children to work with I think that that would definitely be my next step yeah that that sounds like good advice so first of all maybe you could do some of these working memory capacity tests with some students yeah. um, or activities rather than the word tests and then you could find out the results of those and that that would be insightful in terms of of, of understanding students and and then that guide it sounds would then help you to s introduce some strategies that would support those students particularly or all students actually yeah I, well I was just thinking that when you were talking yeah definitely I don't there's not going to be any detriment to the other children in the class by using these strategies so I I definitely would suggest it's something that we can all use with all children it, it's not necessarily just for those with the poor working memory but obviously they are the children that will benefit from it the most and it is as simple as you know using the digit span task with a class you know that it would be a bit of fun for them and and they and and that is a really quick and easy way of just getting a bit of an idea although I suspect looking at if you were to look at the profile that most teachers can pick out just even from looking at those criteria that you're like you can think of certain children they, they do when you when you know the profile I think straight away you can think of certain children that this is going to have the biggest impact for. Mm. And where where do people find the classroom guide? Is it in a book that's been written by, um, this is going to sound like a major plug for the guest on the podcast, but <laughs> is it in a book or is it freely available? I, I genuinely don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you just search for understanding working memory, a classroom guide, and yeah, it's a, we tend to print it as a short document and yeah, it's, it's freely available and it, it, as I say, it's one of the, the best resources that we've, we've used that delegates have, have just found really resonated with them. And, and from there, there is obviously extra reading and things that you can look into and understanding more, as I say, about the different components of working memory might be a next step that people want to look into the, you know, the difference between the phonological loop and the visuospatial sketch pad could be a next step for people as well. That's brilliant. Thank you very much, Julie. Um, thanks for your time. It's been really interesting talking to you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Trialed and Tested podcast. Thank you for listening. I hope you found it interesting. I hope you found it useful. If you want to get your hands on this guide that's been referenced throughout, then you can search on it using the term Understanding Working Memory, a Classroom Guide. It's freely available. It's a PDF and it should be one of the top results from your search. Thank you to our guests in this episode of the podcast, to Dr. Tracy Alloway, to Alex Quigley from the EEF, and to Julie Watson from Huntington Research School. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do consider subscribing. It's available on Spotify, on iTunes, through Android apps, or you can just listen online through the EEF website or via the Evidence-Based Education website. Thank you for listening. 